Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today, we're taking you outdoors for a Hanaho show highlighting recent interviews we did out in the field. We revisit a Big Island landowner whose property oozed lava during the 2018 destructive Kilauea eruption. We hike up the nearly 200-foot Fisher 8. We'll also reshare a discussion about a different kind of healing. Think therapy among the trees. As we come off Arbor Day festivities, we go forest bathing. And we'll return to Kalapana on the Big Island, where Ohia is making a rebound. Plus, we replay our story on box jellies. We learn more about the spawning cycle out at a beach in Waikiki. From the mountain to the sea, we're taking the conversation on the road. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Most of the work we do takes place inside our studio on Kaheka Street, but on occasion we take our recording equipment into the outdoors to capture the story at its source. So today we're re-wearing some of our favorite interviews that we've done out in the field. We start on the Big Island. If you were standing in Leilani Estates in May of 2018, you would probably be transfixed by the sight of lava erupting out of your property or flowing through your neighbor's yard. Today, much of that lava has cooled, including what was then called Fisher 8. It is the largest cinder cone to rise from the eruption and is responsible for the majority of the volcanic activity over the last half of the event. Today, it's known as Ahu Ailaau. The Conversations Russell Subiona got the chance to tour uh, the now dormant cinder cone this past May. Do you remember where you were when the 2018 Kilauea eruption began? I'm just letting everybody know right now, we have an eruption. We have an eruption. We have an eruption right now. Eruption in Leilani. No joke. Um, lava is coming out right now. I do. I was at work watching a live stream video on Facebook. Growing up on the Big Island, we were always warned that there could be eruptions anywhere, anytime. But to see it actually happening had me in a trance. I'm sure just about anyone living in Hawaii at that time has a story. So black sand started feeling the earthquakes first, I would say out of all the neighborhoods. And they felt it probably for about a 24 hour period of time because that's how long we felt it. Yeah. So it was like a noon to noon. And that whole night when it was rocking and rolling in here, I mean, nobody's sleeping. That's Chris Burmeister. He's lived in Leilani Estates for 20 years and raised his sons there. His home was overrun by lava. He has a new home now. And in the five years since the eruption, he's bought some of the surrounding land from his neighbors. We met up at his property on the north side of Fisher 8 near his fence that separates the lush green flora that populates most of the lots in Leilani Estates and the edge of the barren black lava fields. It was various intensities, just high, medium, low, and constant. As soon as you tried to sleep, it felt like somebody was shaking you and waking, waking you up. And so we got through that night and woke up the next day and that's when they started noticing cracks in the road. Then Ikaika was mapping all the cracks and it just happened to make this line right across the neighborhood but at that time usgs was saying hey there's no heat yet so we don't know so we all got really good sleep that night and woke up the next day and the cracks that used to be this wide are now this wide <laughs> so still no heat so then i'm talking to my father at 4:30 in the afternoon and i kept hearing this jet engine sound and i thought huh maybe pgv is releasing all the steam shutting down for safety precautions and you know it's just what went instantly went through my mind and and i thought oh, okay that's nothing you know jet engine sound <laughs> then all of a sudden sulfur comes through every window of the house it was a beautiful sunny day breezy sulfur just comes through the whole house and and i, I told my dad i said i gotta go something's going on right now i gotta go so i hung up the phone and i told my boys get off the ps4s it's time to go Let's go check it out. And we only live two streets away from Mohala Street. And this is where it all started. That's where Fissure One started. And we got there and 
get out of the truck and it's shooting 150 feet this the the plume coming out of the ground it was so thick and pungent the the sulfur you, know, you could see the red glow coming out of the ground you know the, the lava was spewing out onto the uh the road and i just told my boys i said hey turn around let's take a picture you're never going to be here again and so i got the kids and we went to the house and we started bugging out we put the trailer on the truck and first thing i put in the trailer was my deep freezer <laughs> i don't know why but i just put the i had the dolly and i just <laughs> put the deep freezer hey there's all our food for the next couple of weeks maybe you know because you're just trying to think of what to grab and i told my kids i said hey if you love it you better get it in the truck right now and <laughs> they come out with our tvs and ps4s i'm like you guys come on so and mind this they thought i was crazy they said oh dad it's just earthquakes and i'm like nah never felt that ever one of the things i think is that when people actually understand the scale just how surprised they are what was the most surprising thing about the eruption to you i guess it was the first day people never thought this would really really happen it was beyond their wildest dreams but you know what hearing the jet engine sounds and you know what they, that is it's when the the lava has finally surfaced okay that jet engine sound is when it's all starting to shoot out and it's basically like a blowtorch coming out of the ground and it's about six to seven feet tall in places this is coming from a mile down and it takes a while for it so you won't know the heat is coming until it's there i mean it once it's there it's okay now you got heat it's over it's too late now so yeah i guess that was the the surprise i, I don't know it you know i there's nothing that surprises me with lava now. I mean, I, I don't doubt anything. <laughs> you know, I, what burnt, what really aggravates me is when I hear people that live on this island, and they say, "Oh, I'm safe." I'm like, really? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, Waikoloa, all the way down to South Point, all the way up to Cape Kumukahi, and all the way to the Wainuiunui River. You know, you just you're fair game. You want to go take a walk? Yeah, let's do it. Burmeister also owns much of the land beneath Fisher Eight or what we now call Ahu'ai-la'au. The name references the altar of the Hawaiian deity Ai-la'au. It's also been translated by some as Shrine of the Forest Eater. As we ascend the 170-foot-tall fissure, Burmeister points out what trespassers have left behind on the slope of the cone. What I want to point out real quick is, is you can see it really good. Can you see all those tracks over there? Yeah, I was just going to ask about that. That's all ATVs and dirt bikes. Oh, man. So this is what happens when something like this is left unattended. Mm -hmm. And people start doing whatever they want. And, you know, they might be mad at my fence post, but really, this stuff is irreversible. It's like walking on the moon. You can't get it out. It's going to take so many years for that to go away. And that, believe it or not, was like two years ago. And I think there was a, another event more recently, like within the last three months but it blends right in with the two-year-old stuff mm -hmm. so uh you know some people are like ah chris don't worry about it i don't know i wanted better for this place i thought it deserved better i won't doubt we see somebody out here today but previously previous years people everywhere today ahuai laau lies dormant but that doesn't mean that the danger is gone or that people still keep their distance even though the eruption has stopped for now, new problems have taken its place. So, anyway, this is the very top edge. We're gonna stay on this trail. Okay. And we move this out of the way. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is a good vantage point from right here. So when uh, the cracks are in the ground, first showing, and when Fissurate reactivated the second time, that was all of the lava that was at the bottom of Kilauea right. that was finally making its way down. And when it showed on the 28th, 27th, 28th, it was like somebody took a thumb and put it over the water hose and it sprays out in every direction. That's what it was doing here. It had multiple thin fountains shooting out in different directions. And then as the hole gets bigger, the fountain will get more focused and more it'll get taller 
And then as the hole continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger, the fountain will get shorter and shorter, and then it turns into basically like this huge boiling pot of lava. And the lava at times got as high as this uh, collapsed portion right here. So yeah, that's a lot of lava. <laughs> anyway, this whole hill is basically made of reticulite and Paley's hair. You can see all the little shards here. I mean, they're really small needle-like hairs of, of glass or lava, lava glass. But yeah, this whole mountain is basically made out of it. And it's, you know, we found pieces this long and during the eruption, you know, oh, hanging on branches. Oh, it was amazing. Three feet long. It's hard to find. I mean, you can't find that. Yeah. Because it breaks down so fast. You can look at it, it falls apart. <laughs> and that's the middle of the road. So from here, you can see the oh, the end of the oh, road right. over here. Oh, you can see the road there. Yeah, and if you look down there, you can see the albizias, the dead albizias. Yeah. Okay, and look right above the uh, lava, and there's a little strip of asphalt. Okay. And it's about a football field length down there. That's how far away it is, and that's you know how long this road was, wow. and that's how much it took. So, wow. yeah, it's a. Uh, it's kind of crazy to think you're standing where the road used to be. So this is the Lava River. We call this the eddy, you know, because the, the, the lava would hit here, split, and swirl back here, and then get sucked in with the rest of the lava river and carry it all the way down to Kapoho. This made the lava uh, the lava river go in this direction, and it just once it got once it picked that path, it was gone. Never been in it. I know somebody that has. We made the video. You could pretty much fit a bus through it. It's so, big. so this is the lava channel. Kind of gives you a good idea just how much volume came through here. And this was overflowing at times yeah you know often <laughs> and i know from the from the outside it's hard to capture the speed at which the lava was flowing too i think i saw one video that finally did it for me yep and it looked like a river full of water <laughs> yeah it's, it's amazing it was it was it was like niagara falls speed i swear you couldn't outrun this lava had it broken out this way we'd all been in trouble you know Burmeister says he's in talks to acquire more land beneath the cooling lava. As we started returning to his fence line, I asked him what drives him to buy land that has no practical use and is still at risk to erupt again. If I'm not going to buy it, that means somebody else could buy it and I don't know, I might not know that person, they may not know the situation. And you know, these are bits and pieces of this puzzle, this, this event that happened and it, you know, it, for whatever reason, it's important to us and it's a chapter of our lives that, you know, we'll never forget and, you know, keeping it safe and sound and, and in our hands, I guess, is the way we're thinking about it. That was Leilani Estates resident Chris Burmeister reflecting on the fifth anniversary of the 2018 Kilauea eruption with HBR's Russell Subiono earlier this year. Forest bathing, it may sound strange, but imagine yourself in the ambiance of the forest. You walk slowly and open your senses. You feel the touch of the breeze on your skin. You listen to bird songs and the movement of trees in the wind, and you take a deep breath. It is a practice that originated in Japan. Here's Miku Lenintine guiding forest bathers through a morning at Lion Arboretum under a canopy of trees. For this one, we'll have the invitation to wander out, wander out into the space here. It can be the grassy area, down into the forest, and just begin to notice the movement around you. Begin to notice movement the sky, the leaves, 
field of grass. The light shines. And even your own movement. To learn more about forest bathing, HBR's Lillian Song, talk with Phyllis Look, Hawaii's first certified forest therapy guide. Her name may be familiar to you. She retired a few years ago as HBR's marketing director to lose herself in forest bathing. She has led over 400 sessions since 2018. The real importance of forest bathing in everyday life is about coming back to a relationship with the natural world that many of us don't have the time or society certainly doesn't encourage that anymore. But one of the other things that people have found really important in a forest bathing walk is the human connection that is made. This was especially profound during COVID when we were doing these remotely guided or virtual walks over Zoom. And I actually had participants in London and Mumbai and Argentina and Minnesota all at the same time. And of course, they were all in different time zones, all in different lockdown environments. So we saw a lot of each other's living rooms and couches. But these were all perfect strangers to each other. Everyone was so desperate for some kind of human connection. And they were so vulnerable with each other and sharing the most simple and yet profound things And that happens, I think, too, on a forest bathing walk. And I think another reason why people come away feeling so good. And there's a lot of evidence showing the positive results of partaking or to immerse yourself in the forest. Talk about the history in Japan as well. This practice of forest bathing, known in Japan as Shinrin-yoku, which translates literally to forest bathing, came about in the early 80s as a response to an epidemic of stress-related diseases brought about by rapid urbanization. And the government took on this notion of needing to provide a self-care practice for its people. And they turned to a resource that was readily available to them, which are their forests. So in recommending that people go out into the forest, they were relying on something that the people of Japan already knew from their long history of nature connection and nature worship, that one feels better, just one simply feels better by going into the forest. But they also took advantage of this government sponsorship to really look into what is the evidence for the benefits of going into the forest and spending some slow time there and just sort of observing and um, taking it in with your senses. And what they found are um, physiological benefits that have everything to do with stress reduction, cardiovascular improvement, um, immune boosting. They've also found that it helps with our psychological state of being, our brain health. And those go to everything from improving executive functioning to memory and attention. Uh, It's great, for example, for kids with attention disorders. It's also been found to help people who are not only on the spectrum, but also looking for ways to become more creative and compassionate. So they've looked into all of this kind of stuff and collected evidence that shows that forest bathing is beneficial both for our bodies and our minds and our spirits. And you are going to be taking this, the Shinyoku, the forest bathing, to Maui. Right, right. I'm so excited to be returning to Maui because um, I did some forest bathing walks there in 2020, at the very beginning of the pandemic, courtesy of Blue Zones Hawaii. Initially, the idea to go to Maui was inspired by some friends there who have come on walks with me and said, we need you here in Maui. So we thought we would align it with Arbor Day on November 4th, and the Maui Nui Botanical Gardens, situated there in Kahului, 
has been kind enough to host these series of Arbor Day events and include forest bathing as one of them on the weekend after Arbor Day. That's November 11th and 12th. What happened during the planning period were the Lahaina fires. And so the purpose for these walks has radically shifted. And the intention now is to try and make these walks available to those who have been affected by the fire, either directly, who've maybe lost their homes, been first responders or volunteers in the fire recovery, or those who have just been indirectly affected, which is basically everybody else who lives there in greater Maui. And the thought is that when you're displaced and forced to flee the land that you had put down roots and that you loved, nature may be seen now as somewhat hostile, or you certainly have lost a part of this connection that you had to place and to who you are, really, because you were so much Lahaina in this case. And what they found is that forest therapy has been very useful in this kind of recovery process in areas like Paradise, California, where the campfires were. There, we've actually trained a bunch of forest therapy guides in the community to help that community grieve or come back to a relationship with this land that had been taken from them. So we're kind of hoping that by going back to Maui on November 11th and 12th at the Maui Nui Botanical Gardens, that we can do that same kind of healing for the people of Maui, the community of Maui. The forest bathing experience does not presuppose any kind of conclusion or therapy. We always say that the forest is the therapist. The guide simply opens the doors. So I don't have a prescription. I don't have an agenda. I don't have a goal in mind. But I believe that the forest, just because of the fact that we evolved in this place, will create whatever healing and connection that will be needed by the participants. So whether it's grieving whether it's just resting, whether it's simply being re-inspired and re- being reminded of their purpose in life, that I trust that that will happen on the forest bathing walk. So we just want to make that opportunity available to those people on Maui to, to please come find this restorative two hours there in nature where it's safe, where you are invited to just open your heart again to yourself, to the other beings, both of the human world and of the more than human world, to share with others possibly, you know, what your experience has been, and to share with the natural world that you're surrounded by what it is that is important to you at that moment. And maybe it'll bring you to a a further point on your journey of processing what just happened with the fires. Whether or not you go on a forest bathing walk with a guide, which we always recommend because I think the guide can actually bring you to a new perspective and be a a wonderful new playmate with you, take some time to go outside and just look around, take a breath, and acknowledge the fact that we are not the center of the universe and that this place that we are so blessed to live in here in Hawaii has a lot still to share and that there is incredible intelligence and knowledge and lessons that we have to learn if we would just quiet ourselves and take some time to slow down and look outside. That was forest bathing Hawaii owner Phyllis Look talking to HBR's Lillian Song. If you're just joining the conversation, we're airing a special rebroadcast featuring our favorite field interviews. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Bedrick. I'm the author of Revisioning Activism. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about depth, dialogue, and diversity, and bringing that to individual and social change. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to our Outdoors Hanaho, featuring recent interviews that we've done out in the field. Nearly 40 years ago, a tract of pristine ohia forest in Kalapana on Hawaii Island was slated to be cut down and shipped for a proposed biomass energy project. Outcry from environmentalists and ecologists eventually paused the project, but not before 900 acres of ohia had been bulldozed. Many called the event a tragedy, but it also provided the perfect conditions for a natural experiment. Would this forest recover? Would native species return? HBR Savannah Harriman Pote went to Kalapana in July of 2022 to see for herself. Hang on your microphone. <laughs> okay, keep in mind, I set out to visit a tract of native forest in Kalapana that was clear-cut in the 1980s. Acres upon acres of trees were reduced to roots by bulldozers, a total reset of the landscape. Given the area's history, I didn't really expect to find myself under the thick shade of an ohia canopy and wading neck deep through undergrowth. Say it one more time, Plant. Hang on your microphone. No, we're almost there. <laughs> we're almost there. <laughs> we are. My tour guide is Flint Hughes, an ecologist with the U.S. Forest Service, who swears that we're not lost. It's hard to believe you actually uh, work for the Forest Service when I'm watching you jump a fence. <laughs> How do you like that? Yeah. We've also rendezvoused at the tree line with Jim Jacoby, a recently retired U.S. Geological Survey biologist. Uh, that's the biological part of the U.S. Geological Survey, not the geology part. Jacoby explored this area, surveying native flora and fauna in the 1970s, back when it was still a pristine, lowland rainforest. And it was a marvelous forest when I came in here. It was just amazing in terms of the diversity, not only in terms of the understory of native plants, um, but also, you know, the birds and, and other aspects of the community. Hugh's connection is more recent. Over the past decade, he studied the forest's succession, looking at which species have come to dominate the landscape after the clear-cutting event. Though now under the authority of the Department of Land and Natural Resources, this land once belonged to the private Campbell Estate. In 1984, the now-defunct Biopower Corporation cut a deal with the Campbell Estate to harvest more than 3,000 acres worth of mature ohia trees in order to make wood chips for a biomass energy project. The area of forest that we're looking at was logged, the trees were, were removed, and the area was effectively bulldozed so that it was basically barren lava strewn with dead vegetation. Hughes first investigated the recovery of this Kalapana forest at the urging of University of Hawaii botanist Dieter Mueller Dumbois. In a 1985 report requested by the Biopower Corporation, Mueller Dumbois called on the Campbell estate to put a stop to the clear cutting, arguing that this particular tract of Ohia forest was, quote, the best original or primary lowland forest in Hawaii. Reading some of the literature about the forest that was here initially, one of the things that Dieter remarked about and Charlie Lamoureux remarked about, I think, was 
this forest was part of a intact, mature, native-dominated ecosystem that started just up from the ocean and headed up unbroken to volcano and then beyond. That was one of the kind of spectacular things about this forest. And that was one of the reasons why when it was slated to log, that got the alarm bell sounding about it and made people think about how best to convince folks it was worth preserving. About a third of the land was clear-cut before the project was ultimately paused, roughly 900 acres in total. Dennis Grossman now holds the impressive title of Senior Advisor for Environmental Science and Policy for the California Governor's Office of Planning and Research. But he was still a Ph.D. student when he studied the ecological impacts of deforestation in Kalapana in the late 80s. He says at that time, it was an open question about whether native species, particularly ohia, would return. I mean, every time you would see a little seedling coming up, you know, it was a moment of joy. But I think there was, there's little doubt in, 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 in my mind and others that the forest that would come back would not be like the one that had clear-cut. It's easy to think of forests as places where things happen slowly. But Hughes says that when you have a disruptive event, be it a lava flow or a logging operation, the starting gun is fired and the race is on. Pioneering species will rush in to recolonize the new territory. Among the competitors racing to the finish line are seeds from the endemic ohia, as well as those of non-native species, like albizia and strawberry guava. My least favorite trees would have to be albizia, falcataria molecana, and strawberry guava. Cidium cattleyanum. Those two trees are fine as, as trees left to their own devices in their native range. Great. I'm sure I would love to see them. Here in Hawaii, I can't stand to see them because I know what they represent. They represent the elbowing out of native species across our already stressed forests, our stressed native forests. In the mad sprint of forest succession, Albizia is Usain Bolt. This tree can grow nearly an inch a day and reach heights of 20 feet in just its first year. With its umbrella-like canopy and towering form, it blocks a critical resource, sunlight, from reaching native pioneer species. If you look at the Google imagery of this area 10 years ago, you'll see these patches of albizia distinct across this clear-cut area, and that's where they got established. Unfortunately, they were hindered in their expansion because ohia, aluhe, other things captured the site, the surrounding site, so that they really couldn't spread as much as they can in other instances. While albizia and ohia compete for light, Jacoby says strawberry guava is different. It grows under shade, and that's a real fundamental difference. And so it can grow under a very dense shade. And so even in an area such as this where ohia was coming up, it's easy for uh, strawberry guava to invade. In spite of these fierce competitors, Hughes' research proved promising. In just a few short decades, the clear-cut area had regenerated almost half of its biomass. The above-ground mass of the forest, which is one way to think about the forest, is how much biomass does it have, was, at that point, roughly half of the mature forest. And we knew that because we had this adjacent mature forest right upslope to measure and compare it with. So when we calculated the above ground biomass of the forest, it was in the ballpark of the large continental tropical forest that we all think of in Brazil and Latin America and Asia and Africa. And then in the regrowing forest, after 30 years of succession or less than 30 years, we had about half the amount of biomass that had already recovered. One of the factors that sparked the robust regrowth was the soil itself, which turned out to be not so barren after all. Think about this forest as kind of warp speed because the, the ground was bulldozed. It wasn't a new substrate. It was a substrate that was taken down to the ground 
all of the nutrients that were in the soil were still there and available to plants that were going to recolonize. And so that's the difference between primary succession, which is totally new substrate, bare lava flow, low nutrients, rock, versus what we had here after the deforestation event, after the clear cut, which was no plants, but the soils was, were still there, the nutrients were still there, and so much richer environment within which plants could reestablish and grow. So Ohia in this area is doing well. If not winning the race of succession, then at least it's on the podium. But Jacoby worries that when we look at just one species, we literally can't see the forest for the trees. You know, as we look in here, I'm looking into the forest, and frankly, I, I'm looking for native species. I see Ohia. That's all I see. <laughs> the ferns are not, this fern is not native. That's not a native fern. Uh, the grasses are not native. All the other woody species uh, are, are not native. And so all we've got here, it looks like it's a forest that's coming back and it's really strong from an Ohia perspective, but the rest of it is gone. It's not there and it will not come into it. It doesn't have an entry to get into there now because everything else is closed in underneath it. Just like you can't judge the health of a forest by one species, Hughes and Jacoby say you can't think of a single tract of forest in isolation. After the clear cut, the neighboring intact forest acted as a seed source so that Ohia could return to the area. Now, this forest could serve the same purpose for surrounding areas impacted by lava flows. In some ways, a new lava flow provides a great opportunity for native forests to reestablish in areas. But on the other hand, you've got to have seed source. You've got to have intact forest, ohia forest, what have you, providing propagules, seeds, to fly into that area and, and land and, and begin to reestablish. One good way to preserve biodiversity in a native forest? Don't cut it down in the first place. But everything that the Biopower Corporation and the Campbell Estate did in the 1980s was entirely legal, and it still would be on privately owned land today. The forest itself, meaning the vegetation, the trees, has no protection, has no legal protection. What protects the land is zoning. That's J.B. Friday, an extension forester with the University of Hawaii Cooperative Extension Service. If land is zoned conservation, whether it's private or public land, then there are legal restrictions to cutting the trees and clearing the forest. If the land is zoned in agriculture, it doesn't matter if it's pristine ohia forest or if it's a guinea grass field, it's zoned agriculture. And the landowner has the right to clear that and put it into a different use if he or she wants to. This agricultural zoning can come with a pretty nice property tax break. For a long time, Hawaii County didn't have something comparable for people who wanted to dedicate their land to conservation. Friday says that meant it was more financially viable for a homeowner to clear their land and put a goat on it than it was to restore an Ohia forest. That's changing. As recently as 2020, the county passed a bill to expand the types of native forest that could qualify for TATS write-offs in order to encourage conservation. But Friday said the majority of our Ohia forests are still found on agricultural land. The Puna subdivisions, all the way from volcano to the ocean, are zoned agriculture. So all of that forest is zoned agriculture. Any of the landowners there have the right to clear their forest and put in a coffee farm or citrus or graze livestock on it. Much of the Kona Ohia forest is zoned agriculture. Much of the Kau forest is zoned agriculture. Those forests don't have legal protection, no. The Ohia tree isn't called a pioneer species for nothing. Hughes estimates that there are roughly 290 million individual Ohia trees on Hawaii Island. Even when you tally up the combined threats of deforestation, fungal pathogens like rapid Ohia death, and even climate change, Hughes doubts we'll lose Ohia entirely. What's really at stake are the ecosystems in which Ohia can thrive, and in turn, keep our environment healthy. I don't know that the consciousness about the relationship between healthy forests and healthy watersheds and clean, abundant drinking water, I don't know that people have quite made that connection that's needed for us to really manage forests in the way that we should be.
That was U.S. Forest Service ecologist Flint Hughes and retired USGS biologist Jim Jacoby on forest recovery in Kalapana. They were out in the field with HPR Savannah Harriman Pope. We now know more about why we see an influx of box jellyfish on Oahu's south shore. The lunar calendar is what we use to forecast that invasion, 8 to 10 days after the full moon. That's what's behind the monthly alerts issued by the city's Ocean Safety Division and local weather broadcasters. Back in June of 2022, we were out at the break of dawn with University of Hawaii scientists during the warning period. Take a listen. The sun is just starting to rise. We're walking along the beach in Waikiki on the prowl for box jellyfish. One of those out bright and early was a member of the Dawn Patrol. Suzanne is a member of St. Augustine's Church located just across the street from the Kapahulu groin. She was scooping up the jellyfish to help beachgoers avoid getting stung. On Wednesday was the first day I got 81, but the total from all of us was over 300. And yesterday, I got 609. I had to empty my bucket three times. The rest of them, when we counted them up, there was over 3,000. And people don't know, and when they see us collecting them, they ask, and it's a good education for people to know that they are dangerous and how to take care of yourself after you get stung. So how long have you been doing this? I joined about five years ago. And this is the Knights of Columbus? Yes, out of St. Augustine's Catholic Church over on Ahua. And so, gosh, have you been stung in this process? No, that's why we have tongs or we have, I have this grabber. We stay away from them. We don't pick them up with our hands because you can get stung. In fact, one of the girls got stung yesterday. When she went to put it in a bucket, one of the tentacles hit her face. How early do you get out here on the beach? Um, we're usually out here at 6.30, 6.45, only because they glisten in the sun and it's easier to see them. Yesterday, you couldn't walk anywhere that you couldn't see them. They were everywhere. But today, not so much. We, you, it's a curve. You know, the first and third day are less than the middle one. And the surfers always ask us how many they got, we got because they know they're dangerous. Okay, you got one here. I got one. And the tentacles are the poison part of them. Yeah, and they, they blend in so well. Yeah, it is hard to tell. Okay, yeah. two. <laughs> After yesterday, my, <laughs> this is a breeze. Up, oh. yeah, they come in and in this area. Okay, three. <laughs> Big one. Three. So is it just in this particular stretch of beach by the groin that you monitor, or how far down do you go? We go to the next beach, this beach, and then down to the pink hotel. Okay, so you, you basically monitor from the Royal Hawaiian Hotel down to right. Queen Sir. Right, exactly. We don't have enough people to to go do the other beaches. I know they had a lot on the West Shore yesterday in Koalina. They said they had over a thousand, which is unusual. Oh, four? <laughs> yep. nope. And you just stay on the shore, you don't go in the water? No, no, no. They usually wash up, you can see them. Yesterday they were just washing up in hordes. But no, I don't go in the water. And what do you do with them once you collect them? We throw them away, we put them in the trash. I mean, the university, when they came, they took them back for research. But for us, it's just getting them off the beach so that people don't get stung. Hours before, University of Hawaii professor Angel Yanigahara was out in the water collecting jellies. In 2022, she published research from more than two decades of studies on the spawning of the stinging creatures. It was a collaboration with SOAST, the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology. Yanigahara was in the water, all suited up and armed with a flashlight. 
interestingly, these animals only appear during a short window of each lunar cycle. And folks ask, where are they the rest of the time? And that's what we set about to answer. Basically, collaborating with folks at SOAST, Dr. McManus, who's an oceanographer and has quite a lot of expertise in ocean current modeling, helped us to discern what could be going on in Mamala Bay. And basically, what occurs out offshore is what's called a cyclonic current. And that is, if you will, like an underwater tornado. So because we have changing currents offshore based upon the tidal status, when the tide is dropping, we have a diamond head current. When it's coming in, we have an EVA current. That sets up this motion within Mamala Bay in the center of the bay, which is basically like an underwater tornado. And that concentrates invertebrate microscopic prey, the phytoplankton and zooplankton, as well as certain soft-bodied animals such as our box jellyfish, which feed upon this collection of organisms. So it provides a rich source of food for the animals in the offshore environment. So if I were to swim about a mile and a half offshore here off the Kapahula groin, would I run into them? Well, that's what we asked, and we tried to look at the modeling and then go offshore at night and do transects and look for them. And basically we find it's sort of a moving target off there. It's not a set waypoint in the bay, but there is an area at the night high tide where you have this diurnal migration of invertebrates to the surface, and one will find box jellyfish there as well. So they're not coming to the nearshore area every day of the lunar cycle, and it's not all of the box jellies that comprise the population that come. It's only those that get triggered that are of a certain age and maturity that can be triggered by the lunar, basically the lack of moonlight for a critical period of time after sunset. They become triggered to spawn, and so their gonads become mature, and there are males and females. They swim very powerfully to the shore. We've tried to go along with them as divers, and they outswum us. We were being pulled diamond head with this perpendicular current, and the box jellies can outswim divers. So, <laughs> so they made it to the shore, and then basically the males are broadcast spawners, so they drop their sperm, and the females take up the sperm fertilize their eggs and then they brood the eggs until they're embryos for a certain number of hours and then they drop these embryo strands and the embryos then in the water column mature to free swimming planulae. These little tiny microscopic planulae then find a substrate of choice and they attach to that and they become polyps and they live as polyps then until they're grow to the proper size that they can become metamorphosed to juvenile medusa jellyfish free swimming jellies and then they get sucked back out into that cyclonic current area and they grow until they're adults and the cycle repeats itself the adults that come in to spawn it's a one-way trip they don't return but their offspring will then settle become polyps and then at a certain period of time they return so the fact that we have adults that come every month in doesn't mean that it just takes one month for them to mature. In fact, we've aged them. They have tiny little accretions called statoliths, which are much like tree rings, and there's one ring per day. So by taking all of the adults that we collected along the beach and isolating the statoliths and polishing them and counting the rings, we could determine how old each animal was, and we get the average age of the sexually reproducing adults, and the average age is about five months. This kind of data set does require a long-term commitment in terms of collection and we did anatomical studies on every single animal as well as age and size, etc. So the findings really that we recently published represent about 20 years worth of work. So the problem is that a lot of visitors just aren't getting this information and 
even when we're out here in full wetsuits and warn people, we hear all the time, oh, I'll watch out for them. Basically, that's impossible. They're really invisible in the water. So it would be good to have better signage out. And really, because we have folks from different time zones here, if we could have the signs out from midnight on these affected days, that would be helpful. Also, first aid. We've spent over 20 years looking at the venom and looking at ways to mitigate the stings. And a low-tech version is douse the site with vinegar. That just keeps things from getting worse. It doesn't get into the skin. It isn't a treatment. It doesn't stop the venom that's already gotten into the bloodstream. And then hot water immersion for 45 minutes and safe hot water. Better yet, we have a, a technology. We've received funding from Department of Defense to look at other ways to inhibit the venom and and we found a very powerful way to do that safely, which resulted in a full U.S. patent. And part of that funding required that if we were successful, we commercialized this. So we worked with the UH College of Pharmacy and UH School of Business to do that. So those technologies are available as a spray and a cream. So you don't need the vinegar and the hot water. You can use this spray and cream. It's a two-step. So it's called Sting No More and it's on stingnomore.com. So the spray has vinegar plus urea plus other actives and the cream has this active that gets through the skin very quickly and absolutely inhibits the venom. So it stops it in its track. And this is important to you because you're sensitive to the jellyfish stings and you got stung this morning. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the in the true sense of the humor of the universe, they always seem to show me who's boss. So I had a little tiny area between my booty and the bottom of my wetsuit that was a small bit open. And sure enough, I got zapped right there. <laughs> but I had my sting no more with me. So I used that right away. All right. That was Angel Yanigohara, University of Hawaii Associate Professor, who just released new research to help us understand the amazing marine world of box jellyfish, the only species we know that follows a spawning and migration pattern tied to the moon phases. And that does it for us for today's special showcase of our favorite interviews from the field. We would like to hear from you. You can call our talkback line and leave your comments. Here's that number, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Check out the conversation segments on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Have a pleasant Thanksgiving holiday and join us Monday through Friday for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.